So today we are going to be in Luke chapter 19. We're going to be looking at Luke's gospel account of what is commonly known as the triumphal entry that took place on Palm Sunday some 2,000 years ago. And so most of your, your headings will read the triumphal entry. Some might read something like uh, the, the king comes into Jerusalem or the king rides into Jerusalem. But when you see that title, the triumphal entry, we kind of wonder, well, why is that? You know, why is it called the triumphal entry? It doesn't really seem like it's this great thing to be triumphant, at least in, in the way that it actually happened. And we know that it, as Jesus rode into Jerusalem just a few short days later, he's going to be tried, uh, mocked, beaten, scourged, hung on a cross, and pay an evil penalty that he did not deserve on your behalf and on my behalf. So why is that a triumphal entry? Well, I think commonly it's called this because uh, back in that day, there was what was known uh, in the Roman world as a triumph. And I have a photo that we'll put up on the screen for you guys. This is what a Roman triumph looked like, uh, triumphus in Latin. No clue if I pronounced that right, but it's probably close enough. Triumph with an S at the end of it. Uh, it was a noun, and it was really specifically this uh, event. It was uh, really this celebration of a military leader or a commander who had uh, done great things out on the battlefield. He had either uh, maybe slain a certain number of, uh, of enemies in the opposing army, or maybe he conquered a certain number of cities. And when he came back riding into the city of Rome, he was treated uh, with an event like this, great fanfare and, and applause. It was really almost like like this leader was a god for the day, almost. It was, it was held in that uh, high regard at that day. And so we know that Israel and Jerusalem specifically is under Roman occupation and rule at this time. And so they would have been very familiar with how things worked in that government, in that system. Even though that was Rome, this is now Jerusalem. This is really where we get this whole idea uh, of a triumph. Now, the particular celebration that we're going to read about today in Luke 19 is going to look very different. And we have a photo of that. Obviously, there's some artistic liberty that was taken with this, but this is uh, what Jesus's triumphal entry probably would have looked like, something similar to this. And you can see the big contrast in between what was known as the Roman triumph and Jesus's triumphal entry. And so in quick succession, uh, here's just a few of the characteristics of a Roman triumph. It was lots of big war horses, a chariot. It was the victor placed in a high and prominent position, Lots of people in the victor's procession. A distance between the victor and the crowd and that separation was to signify difference of importance. There was also quite a bit of preparation. As you could see, there were signs and banners and, and garland and sometimes even a, a, a crown or some sort of wreath that the victor would, would wear upon his head. Um, but as, again, as we read this text, you're going to see that uh, none of these things were present in Jesus's triumphal entry. It was a most atypical, as Pastor Michael joked, it's atypical that I'm in a tie. This was an atypical triumphal entry as Jesus entered into the city. And really, we could say that this was a humble entry from where we get the title of today's message. And so we're going to read through Luke 19. I'm going to ask that you could all stand if you're able, just out of reverence to God's word as we read it together. Luke chapter 19, we're going to begin in verse 28 and read all the way through verse 44. After he had said these things, he was going on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. When he approached Bethpage and Bethany, near the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of the disciples, saying, Go into the village ahead of you, and as you enter, you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever yet sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, Why are you untying the colt? 
you shall say, the Lord has need of it. So those who were sent went away and found it just as he had told them. As they were untying the colt, its owner said to them, why are you untying the colt? And they said, because the Lord has need of it. They brought it to Jesus and they threw their coats on the colt and put Jesus on it. As he was going, they were spreading their coats on the road. As soon as he was approaching near the descent of the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of the disciples began to praise God joyfully with a loud voice for all the miracles which they had seen, shouting, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Some of the Pharisees and the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. But Jesus answered, I tell you, if these become silent, the stones will cry out. When he approached Jerusalem, he saw the city and wept over it saying, if you had known in this day, even you, the things which make for peace. But now they have been hidden from your eyes, for the days will come upon you when your enemies will throw up a barricade against you and surround you and hem you in on every side, and they will level you to the ground and your children within you, and they will not leave in you one stone upon another, because you did not recognize the time of your visitation. You can be seated as we pray. Father, thank you for your written word to us. We know that it is holy, that it is inspired, and there is purpose to it, Lord. Uh, We ask that you would send your spirit upon us this morning, that you would help us to, uh, A, rightly divide this word, and and B, uh, to hear it and to accept it, to let it sink deep into our hearts, Lord, as you would intend for it to be heard. We know that this is a special message today that you have for your people. This isn't my message. This is yours, Father. And so I just lay it at your feet. Would you speak to your people, Father? Would you be with us at this time? And may all we do be for your glory and your purpose, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So we'll pick it up uh, back in Luke 19, verse 28, where it says, After he had said these things, he was going on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. There's a pretty straightforward verse for us. Well, what are these things that he had said? Well, we're going to see in Luke 19, verse 1, if you uh, go up just a little bit or flip back one page, it says that he entered Jericho and he was passing through. Why was he passing through? Well, he was on his way to Jerusalem. As John's gospel tells us, the, um, the feast of Passover was near and that all men were going up into the city. Of course, it's men and women as well. And if you're with us recently on a Wednesday night, uh, we just looked at the three main uh, pilgrimage feasts um, in the life of Israel, and those were Passover, and then Pentecost, and Tabernacles. Those are the three feasts. And so this particular feast, there's a, a crowd of people coming into the city, so everyone was going to be going there, Jesus and his disciples included. And we remember that Passover is to uh, celebrate and to commemorate when God did the miraculous work of saving his people out of Egyptian rule and from under their bondage. They crossed the Red Sea. They go into the, the wilderness, albeit it took 40 years, but then they finally made it into the promised land. And we know that the sign uh, that would spare the Israelites was the Passover lamb, and specifically the blood of the lamb, that they were commanded to slaughter the lamb at Passover. They would paint the blood on the doorposts of the home. And that night, um, when the angel passed over to slay the firstborn of every household, the Israelites in their homes would be spared. So they're headed to this festival, and Luke 9.51 gives us a little more clarity, not just about this festival, but really why Jesus was going. It says, when the days were approaching for his ascension, he, Jesus, was determined to go to Jerusalem. The literal translation of determined, some of you may have notes in your Bibles or have heard before, 
that Jesus set his face towards Jerusalem. He was focused on Jerusalem. That was his goal. That's where he was going. That's what he was doing. And he had a purpose. Now, we know that Jesus always does the will of the Father. And so because of this, the only reason that Jesus determined to go to Jerusalem is because his Father had predetermined that he would go to Jerusalem this specific year. No doubt he was there many of the years in his life, uh, maybe save his, uh, his time in Egypt uh, when they fled. But other than that, he would have been at Passover every year. It was a requirement of the Jewish people. But this year would be a different one. Mark's gospel records this in 1033. It says, Jesus speaking to his disciples says, behold, we are going up to Jerusalem and the son of man will be delivered or be betrayed to the chief priests and the scribes and they will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles. They will mock him and spit on him and scourge him and kill him. And three days later, he will rise again. Now, this was not the kind of arrival that uh, the disciples and the followers really were looking forward to, right? We know that they didn't really understand what was going on. Jesus would often describe the last days and what was going to come and that, that he must go, he must be betrayed, he must die. That was his purpose. But they didn't get it. And maybe more specifically, they didn't want to get it. Sometimes we tend to hear what we want to hear. Can I get an amen? We don't like to hear the other opposing side or when things don't go according to our plan in our minds. But this was the plan that awaited Jesus. So we see clearly in verse 11 that the disciples didn't understand. Luke 19, 11 says, while they were listening to these things, Jesus went on to tell a parable because he was near Jerusalem and they supposed that the kingdom of God was going to appear when? Immediately. Immediately. They were expecting that now the kingdom was here, that Jesus was going to come in riding on the big white horse and save the day, essentially. That's a simplified version. They were expecting this ruling warrior king messiah that was going to ride into town. He was going to overthrow the government. He was going to liberate his people and that the kingdom would be ushered in. And yes, in a sense, but it wasn't going to look exactly how they had planned, exactly what they were looking for. So it says that he told them plainly through this parable. And as we look at the parable of the Minas in the next verse down, verse 12, it says, a nobleman went to a distant country to receive a kingdom for himself and then return. And he called 10 of his slaves and gave them 10 Minas and said, do business with this until I come back. But his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him saying, we do not want this man to reign over us. Sound familiar? That's because this parable is Jesus talking about his coming into his kingdom, but it says he's going to go away for a while, and then he's going to come back and reign. Now, we don't know what that time period is. In fact, we're still waiting in that time period, but that's what was going to happen. And the disciples, as I said, I think in first service, a bunch of knuckleheads, they just didn't get it. They didn't understand it. And again, perhaps because they didn't want to understand it. Now, you'll note that it says Jesus is going up to Jerusalem. Uh, many of you might be familiar with the fact that this is always the terminology used of the holy city. Um, it sits slightly elevated on top of what's known as Mount Moriah, and there's a, a few valleys that run on the east and west of the city. But no matter where you're coming from, north, south, east, or west, you always go up to the city of Jerusalem. It shows honor. It shows reverence um, for the city where God resides. Now, Jesus is coming from Jericho, a city that actually does sit some, I believe it's 800 feet below sea level, near the Dead Sea, near the Jordan River. And he's approaching this long journey upwards, about 20 miles or so from Jericho to Jerusalem. Now, as he's approaching, Jericho is almost due east of where Jerusalem is. And I'll kind of 
do with it. This is my west, but you're east, so I'll show it this way. So Jericho's out here uh, along the Jordan River, and Jerusalem's here to the west. I think it's really easy to gloss over and say, well, he's coming from Jericho, he's going into Jerusalem. But what does that mean? He's going from east to west. East to west, or westward movement, uh, historically in the Bible is always uh, signified with being good, and more specifically, uh, drawing closer to the presence of God. Now, the opposite of that, eastward movement, going from the west to the east, is always associated with bad or, or getting away from the presence of God. All the way back to Genesis 3, we can think of Adam and Eve in the garden. They sin, they get banished. And what does God do? He, he banishes them to the east, and then at the east of the garden, it says, he sets up uh, cherubim and a flaming sword. And that was to guard the way to the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, the tree of life. And so as they were in the east, they were prohibited from coming west. They were prohibited from coming close to God. Later in both uh, the orientation of the tabernacle and the temple, it was situated where the, the doors, imagine let's just say the, the front doors of the church, faced due east. And so as you would approach the temple or the tabernacle, as you would come into the outer courts, then to the inner courts, to the holy place and the holy of holies where only the high priest was allowed, that was a westward movement. We can then think as well of the Israelites as they cross over the Jordan into the promised land, again, east to west. And then the final time that Jesus returns, Zechariah 14 tells us that he will once again stand on the Mount of Olives and something like an earthquake will happen, the mountain will split, half of it will be moved to the north, half of it will be moved to the south, and almost this pathway, if you will, will be created across the Kidron Valley, and Jesus will be able to stand and walk straight into the temple, into Jerusalem, again, from the east to the west. And so what's happening here, in a metaphorical sense, is God is really creating the path. He's paving the way for you and I to draw closer to God. At this point, there's a separation. Ultimately, what's going to happen with, uh, in this next week of this account that we're reading, Jesus' impending uh, death, burial, and then resurrection and ascension into heaven, that is what's going to restore that peace, and that's how we have that access to God. Verse 29 says, When he approached Bethpage and Bethany near the mount that is called Olivet, sent two of his disciples. So Bethany is a town maybe familiar to many of you. It's the home of Mary and Martha and Lazarus. Uh, Lazarus had died, as you know, and then was miraculously brought back to life uh, as Jesus performed that miracle uh, just a few chapters uh, earlier in uh, John's account of this gospel, or excuse me, John's gospel account um, of this time period and what's going on here. It was about two miles east of Jerusalem, this uh, town of Bethany, just on the other side of the Mount of Olives. And it was a town that Jesus would have been very familiar with. It was a home that he had spent some time in. Uh, again, in John's Gospel, the night before this account that we're reading today is when Mary anointed the feet of Jesus with the costly perfume. And so he's very familiar with this place. Bethpage, or in Hebrew, Bethphage, or Bethpage, as it's sometimes uh, pronounced, actually literally means the house of figs or maybe more specifically, the house of unripe figs. Interestingly enough, after the Palm Sunday event, Jesus heads back into the Mount of Olives, and he, he discovers, many of you will be familiar with this story, a fig tree, and as he approaches, he realizes there's no fruit on it. And what does he do? He, he curses it, and it withers up, and it dies. But interestingly enough, the town where that likely took place is actually called the house of unripe figs. Then we have the mount that is called Olivet, the Mount of Olives. Many of you are familiar with this as well. It's just to the east of the city across the Kidron Valley. 
It sits at about 2,700 feet elevation. So just as a reference point, Jerusalem is about 2,500 feet. This mountain is about 2,700 feet, about 200 feet difference. It's not this grand, impressive mountain. I remember, you know, years ago reading stories of the Bible and thinking it was this huge, giant peak, you know, and you could see everything from up top. And then I had a chance to go to Israel, and, you know, we, the, the bus driver tells us, you know, we, we land in Israel, uh, we get on the bus at the airport, and they say, we're going to take you straight to the Mount of Olives. It's got the most beautiful view of the city. And we're like, wow, this is cool. You know, we get to go. And we get out on the bus, and it's, it's kind of like this big molehill. I mean, it's, it's not really much of a mountain. A lot of times we think of maybe going locally up to Big Bear or something, and you get up to the top, and you can look down over much of San Bernardino and Riverside counties and see this huge view. It's, it's nothing at all like that. It's, it's really this tiny little hill just opposite of Jerusalem. Uh, nevertheless, it is a beautiful view. And we know that Jesus spent a lot of time there. Uh, it said he would often go to the Mount of Olives to pray, to, to get away from the crowds, from the hustle and bustle. We know that the Garden of the Gethsemane was also situated just at the base of that mountain, uh, just before you would come down and approach into the city of Jerusalem. In verse 29, it says, Jesus sent two disciples. And verse 30 says, Go into the village ahead of you. There as you enter, you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever yet sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? You shall say, the Lord has need of it. So those who were sent went away and found it just as he had told them. As they were untying the colt, its owner said to them, why are you untying the colt? And they said, the Lord has need of it. So I imagine that the disciples were very confused as to why Jesus was asking for a donkey at this particular time. Again, a bunch of knuckleheads didn't really know and understand what was going on. Jesus had explained plainly many times what was going to happen. They knew that this was the Messiah, or they should have known that this was the Messiah uh, that was spoken about. This was the one prophesied. And all these things were going to take place. But they probably focused on some of the more uh, grander uh, prophecies, the ones that portrayed Jesus, again, as this ruling warrior king, not the humble servant riding on a donkey. And it says that, uh, you go into the, visit, the village opposite of you. This is likely Bethpage, as they're in Bethany at the time. Bethpage is the, is the other village mentioned, so it's probably where the donkey was. Now, five or six times in this uh, short few verses, it says the words tied and untied. The donkey was tied, untie it. If anyone asks, why are you untying it? Say this. So, I don't know what the knot looked like. Uh, it might have been a pretty impressive one. I'm not really sure. Um, maybe it was a miracle. They needed some sort of a Houdini trick to get this thing undone. Um, again, not really sure why this is uh, mentioned in this particular way. Maybe untying the knot was a miracle in and of itself. Now, some people would say that this whole thing was a miracle, that God, through uh, maybe the Holy Spirit, had spoken to the owners of this donkey um, and said, hey, this is what's going to happen. You know, these people are, are going to come and... Um, when, when the disciples showed up, they just knew, okay, well, this is the Holy Spirit. He, he told us that people were going to be coming, and this is what's going to happen. Now, God can certainly do miracles like that. He can lead and guide and direct, and he can speak to people and do all sorts of things. Absolutely. I don't know if we have to necessarily uh, ascribe this to a miracle, though. We know, again, that Jesus was familiar with this town. He had been there before. He'd been here at least a few days now, staying in this home. Most likely, and most scholars believe that he probably just prearranged this. He probably just, when he was in town a couple days earlier, said, hey, in a couple days, if you guys are going to come, they're going to need your donkey. This is what they're going to say. So we could think of it almost like a password that was set up because, you know, stealing a donkey is stealing, and that probably wouldn't have gone over very well. So the owners needed to know, you know, what, what was going to happen here. And so 
again, might have been some sort of a, a password type thing, and uh, we're all familiar with that in this day and age with, you know, people have like 20 million online accounts for different things, and we forget our passwords, and then they often ask you all sorts of security questions. So maybe this was something like that. The disciples are sent out, they encounter the, the donkey, and its owners, instead of maybe asking a question like, uh, what was your high school mascot, or what was your mother's maiden name, they say, why are you untying the donkey? And they respond, the Lord has need of it. There's the password, click, here you go, take the donkey. Now, the word uh, owners, actually, in Greek is uh, the word Lord, and commonly ascribed to the Lord, Jesus Christ. So basically, it says that the donkey's lords, the donkey's owners, asked this question. The disciples responded back, the Lord has need of it. Key difference. So the donkey had lords with a lowercase l, but the Lord, capital L, had a greater need for it, and thus, the lesser defers to the greater, and they hand the donkey over. And so whether you think it was a miracle, whether you think it was this password type effect, I don't know that it's really relevant, but overall, here's the key point. There was a definite predetermined plan. This wasn't something that was just happenstance. They didn't just wander on by and go, oh, here's a donkey just sitting here, let's just take it. No, there was a plan. Again, it was God the Father's predetermined plan that Jesus was now walking in obedience to. So I believe there's an application here for you and for I, and that is, does the Lord have need of anything in your life? Does the Lord have need of anything in my life? Not in the sense that he doesn't actually have it because all we have belongs to him anyway. Not in the sense that he really needs it and he, he can't get by without it because, well, he's the Lord, and that's just not the case. Now, in this case, it was a donkey. I imagine that many of you here today don't own a donkey, so you're probably not going to get asked to give up your donkey, but is there something else that the Lord might be asking you to give up? Not just to give it up, but specifically for his purpose and for his glory. Is there something that's a part of his plan, and God wants to use you as a, as a cog in the wheel, so to speak, as a little tool, as a piece, to help fulfill his mission? Maybe it's your time. Maybe you're spending it somewhere, but God wants you to, to better spend it somewhere else for the purposes of someone else. Maybe it's your finances. The same thing would apply. We did a baby dedication at first service with a couple, and they had gone through a long process of, of uh, fostering and then finally being able to adopt their little girl after about two years process of being in limbo, not knowing whether they're going to get to do that or not. And they talked about their home group at that time. They were in a home group that really was very, very supportive, and it was really just a, a great um, pillar for them to lean on during that time, the fellowship from one another, the prayers, etc. And I mentioned this at first service. I thought, you know, maybe there's some of us here that maybe we need to open our homes. Sometimes we think it's, it's our things, but maybe, maybe our home needs to be opened for the purpose of someone else. And seemingly this was a part of the plan for this other couple in some way. Now, this is the first time in Scripture, by the way, that Jesus uses the word Lord for himself. He says, you know, go in, into the city, and when they ask you, what are you doing with the cult? Say, the Lord has need of it. Basically, I have need of it. Now, it's fitting that he uses this here for the first time because it's also the first time that he accepts any sort of uh, praise from anyone else about who he is. Now, previously, he would, he would silence anyone else who tried to, to declare his kingship or sort of reveal who he was. He would always try to keep it under wraps, but not so this time. Now, the Gospel of Luke leaves this next part out, but in Matthew's Gospel account, it specifically says that this was to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. This refers about uh, Jesus coming and riding on 
the colt, the foal of a donkey. The prophecy that it's referring to is in the book of Zechariah. So if you would turn there, just a couple books back to your left, a second to last book of the Old Testament. In Zechariah 9, chapter 9, and if any of you are note writers like me, you know, maybe you could write Luke 19 next to this, or in your Luke 19, write Zechariah 9, 9. And here's the unmistakable uh, prophecy that Jesus was essentially declaring as he rode in on this donkey that day. Now, Zechariah was written about maybe 520 BC, so well over 500 years before this Palm Sunday event that Jesus rides into the city. This was prophesied, again, pointing back to God's preordained plan. Zechariah 9.9 says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion, referring to Israel. Shout in triumph, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and endowed with salvation, humble and mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, the foal of a donkey. So again, this, this grand entrance, this celebration, and specifically this fulfillment of Zechariah 9 would, would have been pointing to Jesus as the Messiah. You'll note that Jesus wasn't the one declaring this, though. His disciples or his followers were. It just says they. We don't know how big of a crowd that was. Could have been a few dozen, could have been a few hundred. Not really sure. This road from Jericho to Jerusalem, by the way, would have been filled with many thousands of pilgrims coming into Jerusalem over the, the days leading up before Passover. So we don't really know the size of that crowd, but they were the ones uh, cheering and shouting, and they were the ones that recognized this Zechariah 9-9 prophecy. But yet, we know that there were so many that they didn't see it. They didn't get it, right? They, they didn't want to believe it. And I think it's because they weren't hoping for that. They weren't hoping for a humble king to come in. They wanted the ruling, mighty warrior king to come in and save the day. But that's not what was going to happen, at least this time. They were really expecting him to come riding on a horse. Job 39 uh, says this specifically about the horse. Did you give the horse his might? Do you clothe his neck with a mane? Do you make him leap like the locust? His majestic snorting is terrible. He paws in the valley and rejoices in his strength. He goes out to meet the weapons. He laughs at fear and is not dismayed. And he does not turn back from the sword. The quiver rattles against him, the flashing spear and javelin. With shaking and rage, he races over the ground, and he does not stand still at the voice of the trumpet. As often as the trumpet sounds, he says, aha, and he senses the battle from afar and the thunder of the captains and the war cry. This is what they would have been waiting for their Messiah to come riding on. I can't stress enough, this is not really who they were hoping for, who they wanted. Yes, the scriptures prophesied that, but that's not who they wanted. They failed to grasp, as this uh, parable of the Minas told us, that as the man was going to go away for a while to a distant country and then come back, likewise Jesus was going to be going away for a short time and then come back. When he does come back, he will eventually come riding, as they suspected, on the white horse. In the ancient Middle Eastern world, leaders rode horses if they rode to war, but donkeys if they came in peace. 1 Kings 33 and 44 mention Solomon riding a donkey on the day he was recognized as the new king of Israel. If you're taking notes, other instances of leaders riding donkeys are Judges 5.10, 10.4, and 12.14. The mention of a donkey in Zechariah 9.9 fits the description of a king who would be righteous and having salvation, gentle. Rather than riding to conquer, this king would enter in peace. 
And while Jesus will always be King of kings and Lord of lords, his mission on his first coming was a little bit different. He would come ushering in peace. John 3.17 says, For God did not send the Son into the world to judge the world, but so that the world might be saved through him. And Mark 10.45 says, For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. This was the purpose for which he first came. To die for the sins of you and I, for the sins of the world, to serve, to lay down his life for his subjects. That's why he came. The second coming, though, again, will, will be exactly how the people of this day wanted it, how they expected it. Revelation 19 paints a beautiful picture of that. Starting in verse 11, it says, And I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse. And he who sat on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and wages war. His eyes are a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written on him which no one knows except himself. He is clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies which are in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword, so that with it he may strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. And he treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God, the Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings, and Lord of Lords. This is the Messiah that they were hoping for, the one that they had long expected. And it would happen, but not yet. They instead received not the warring king, but the humble king. The humble king that would come and sacrifice his life. And there's nothing new under the sun. Sometimes we see today the masses turn away and, and reject Jesus because he's not what they expected. He's not what they hoped for. Sometimes we like to put, come up with our little box and we try to put God in the box and say, well, if it fits what I think, then that's great, then I'm going to believe in it. But if it's outside of that sphere, well, no, no, no. That's, that's not Jesus. That's not who he is. But really, more importantly, it's, that's just not who I want to worship. And there's a danger there that sometimes we are unwilling to do that, to yield and to bend. But look at our God and what he was willing to do. He could have been unwilling and said, no, I'm not, I'm not going to go do that. I'm not going to go on that journey. I'm not going to be killed and, and crucified for their behalf. But he did, our humble God. It was a beautiful thing that we ended last week on Philippians 2, was it not? Talking about a humble God, that Jesus embodied ultimate humility. That though he existed in the form of God, he didn't regard equality with God something to be grasped. And he was obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And that's probably one of the biggest differentiations between these two triumphs that we see. We saw the Roman triumph where, again, it was the, the victor's main you know, purpose in life. I mean, part of their, their whole life's ambition would have been just, I want to have a triumph. That's it. That's all they looked forward to. But Jesus was the very opposite. His whole triumph, his whole entry, his whole life was marked with humility putting others first, regarding one another as more important than himself. Now, we know in hindsight that this type of king, this humble king, was certainly the one that the people needed. It's the one that you and I needed. Let's not forget that we're not just talking about the people 2,000 years ago that witnessed this event firsthand, but you and I need this humble king. 
But I don't believe that you or I, if we were there that day, would have said, yeah, 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 the, the Philippians 2 king, that's who we want. No, that wouldn't have been us. I think I can speak for most of you and say that wouldn't have been us. We would have said the, the ruling warrior king, the Messiah, that's who we want, right? Who would have lined up and said, no, 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 the Isaiah 53, suffering servant. Yeah, that, that's who we want. Send them our way. That's just not our human nature, but that's our God's nature and part of his specific plan. Verse 35 continues, they brought it to Jesus and they threw their coats on the colt and they put Jesus on it. Now, the fact that the colt had never been ridden on is kind of a further declaration of, of Jesus's uh, divinity, really, and his dominion over all creation. Uh, I am by no means a donkey expert, but I did grow up some years in the city of Norco, and I know enough to know that I don't want to go sitting on a donkey that's never been sat on before, okay? It's not going to end well. But this certainly wasn't the case for Jesus. He has dominion over all of those things. It didn't seem to be an issue for him, didn't seem to present a problem. Now, another note on the fact that it had never been written on is maybe that it was set apart for, for holy or special service. If you're taking notes, Numbers 19, verse 2, and 1 Samuel 6, verse 7, talk a little bit about that, about animals being used for holy service uh, when they were previously uh, not put into any sort of service. Now, notice that the disciples or, or the followers, we're not sure if it's just the two that went to grab the donkey or maybe it was the whole crowd, they put Jesus on the colt. doesn't appear that he even climbed on it himself. It says that they put him on it. Maybe he was uh, still so humble that he wasn't even willing to fully accept that title yet. Not really sure what's going on, but they appear to put Jesus on the colt. Now, this would have been uh, quite an image. Uh, this morning, we had a pre-service prayer before the 8.30 service, and Pastor Mike Rizzi was telling a story some years ago. He was in, I think it was Costa Rica, and they were doing one of those little excursions as a part of the trip where they ride horses along the beach. Sounds so majestic. And for whatever reason, he had a stubborn horse. And after quite a while of it not, you know, going where it needed to go, uh, he asked the guy, hey, can I trade this in, you know, for another horse? Well, all that was left was this tiny little donkey equally as stubborn as it would turn out. So here's Pastor Mike on this little donkey, and it would have been quite a sight. You know, I, I'm fairly tall, and I imagine myself going to like a little pony ride or something to where I'm, I'm sitting on it, but my feet are still on the ground, you know, kind of a Fred Flintstone, and I need to kind of use my feet to get it going. Uh, it, it was very much a, a humbling position, I think, for Jesus to be in, and, and not, um, not very typical. Uh, but nevertheless, that's what was going on here. Verse 36 continues, as he was going, as he was still headed toward Jerusalem, they were spreading their coats on the road. Uh, the spreading of coats signifies glory or honor given to a certain person, uh, maybe a sort of deference um, or submission to them, really laying everything at their feet is kind of the picture that we see. 2 Kings 9, 12, and 13 talk a little bit about uh, Jehu being anointed as king, and the same thing happened where they spread their cloaks in the road and laid it out before him. We could think as well of maybe the chivalrous act uh, of a man, you know, taking his coat off and laying it over the puddle so the lady didn't step in it. I guess that happened some centuries ago. I think chivalry is mainly dead for the most part, but uh, they tell me that that used to happen. Now, for those of you that are intently following along, and I know that's 99.9% .9 of you this morning, you'll notice one thing that we haven't got to yet, and that is the palm branches, right? There's no palm branches mentioned. Why is that? Well, I have no idea. Uh, that's my simple answer for you. For whatever reason, Luke's gospel leaves out the branches completely. 
Matthew and Mark mention it this way. Matthew says, most of the crowd spread their coats on the road, and others were cutting branches from the trees and spreading them in the road. Mark says this, and many spread their coats in the road, and others spread leafy branches, which they had cut from the fields. Now, without getting too in-depth, the Greek words in both of those gospels are actually different, so possibly denoting two different sorts of trees or branches or maybe even species of plants. And John is actually the only gospel writer that mentions palm branches, interestingly enough. I don't know uh, why that is. The Greek word is phonix, and he mentions it here in this account and only one other time. And the only other time he mentioned it is when the palm branches will be once again used to praise Jesus. That's in Revelation 7, and it says this in verse 9, After these things I looked, and behold, a great multitude which no one could count, from every nation and all tribes and all peoples and all tongues, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes and palm branches were in their hands, and they cry out with a loud voice saying, Salvation to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. John portrays the triumphal entry in Jerusalem as a picture of what happens in the heavenly Jerusalem with multitudes, palm branches, and shouts to the Lord. And this is the true triumph that yet still awaits our King Jesus. Palm branches can signify triumph. They can signify victory, peace, even eternal life. And they're mentioned several times in Scripture with varying degrees of significance and different meanings. But there's one time where it's actually specifically commanded that something is to be done, and that's in reference of the Feast of Tabernacles, also known as the Feast of Booths, uh, or, or Sukkot in Hebrew. And this idea uh, comes out of uh, Leviticus 23, where it says, And you shall take on the first day the fruit of splendid trees, the branches of palm trees, the boughs of leafy trees, and willows of the brook, and you shall rejoice before the Lord your God seven days. Now, this feast was really to commemorate uh, Israel's wilderness wanderings for 40 years when they, they dwelled in temporary shelters, when they tabernacled, if you will, with God. God eventually would come and tabernacle with us. John 1.14 tells us this. God came to earth and he tabernacled with men. And he was tabernacling with his disciples in a sense. And as he rode into Jerusalem, he had tabernacled in that city. And so while there's definitely some conjecture here and certainly not a consensus, we look at the possibility that there's at least three different types of branches used, not just palm, but as, the, as Mark and Matthew's gospel mentioned, you know, leafy branches and uh, different sorts. So it could be that it looks back on this Feast of Tabernacles where the branches were collected together. And today in modern times, uh, when, when we celebrate this, we actually had an offer extended to us uh, just this last fall to celebrate over at the Messianic congregation on the other side of town. And what they do is they, they take these, what's called four species. One is a fruit, and then three are the, the different species of uh, branches, and they bind them together uh, and tie them, uh, signifying unity, and they, they wave them, and they, they have uh, certain prayers and certain things that they shout. So it could possibly be that this kind of harkens to that idea based off of that, that image of, of shouting and, and praising to the Lord. The command in Leviticus again says, you shall rejoice before the Lord your God. And that's again what these followers were doing this day. Verse 37 says, as soon as he was approaching near the descent of the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of the disciples began to praise God joyfully with a loud voice for all the miracles which they had seen. 
shouting, Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. There's one more photo uh, that I'd like to share with you guys that'll be up on the screen in a second here. There it is. This is uh, a, a depiction of what Jerusalem might have looked like at the time of Jesus. This is from the vantage point of standing on the Mount of Olives, maybe a little bit to the south, but then looking uh, onto the holy city, you can see what would be called like the lower city would be on your left to the south. The you know, large prominent feature in the center, of course, is the temple, a temple mount, and then the temple there right smack dab in the center. So there's this beautiful picture, and I kind of imagine this, this scene as, as Bethany and Bethpage are on the east side of the, the Mount of Olives. They're, they're yet on this side of, of the hill that, that this uh, vantage point is. And as soon as they crest the top of that hill, as soon as the city comes into sight, it's got to be a, a beautiful thing. The, the temple was very large. It was gilded with gold around the, the top and maybe glistening in the sunlight. And the shouts of praise erupt just as they crest the hill and they start their descent down into the city of Jerusalem. Now, you'll note that it says, they started rejoicing for the miracles they had seen. Now, it could be that they were rejoicing just and only for the miracles that they had seen. We don't know for sure, but again, nothing new under the sun. How often do you and I maybe rejoice and praise God for what he's done for us, for an answered prayer, for a great blessing? But do we rejoice in him always, just simply for who he is? And it could be that some of the, the crowd that day got so caught up in what was happening, uh, you know, and there's just throngs of people going on, and they thought, oh, this great miracle. Jesus had just raised a man from the dead, Lazarus. They were praising him. They were following him. And then just a few short days later, in their eyes, it would appear that the miracles had ceased. He stopped doing anything else. He eventually was handed over, mocked, killed, scourged, crucified. To them, the miracles had ceased. Maybe this guy wasn't who he said he was. And those shouts of praise, glory to God in the highest, turned into crucify him, crucify him, just three, four days later. And let us not think that you and I are incapable of doing things like that. We might not physically say those words, but what might happen in our hearts? As they praise and rejoice, the first line is a quote from Psalm 118. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Here Luke adds the moniker king. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord, recognizing his kingship. And then the second line is reminiscent of the announcement in Luke 2 at the birth of Jesus. The heavenly hosts appear and they shout out glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among men with whom he is pleased. See, then at that time it was peace on earth. But the people rejected the king. They rejected his rule and authority. They rejected who he was and they decided not to follow him. And because of that rejection, peace on earth was no longer an option. That was off the table, if you will. But now, through Jesus' obedience, through his impending death and burial, but ultimately resurrection and ascension, a new kind of peace would be made available to man. And that is peace in heaven. It is peace with God. It is, if you will, God and sinner reconciled. That's the peace that they were looking forward to. Romans 5.1 says, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. That's the differentiation, through our Lord Jesus Christ. There's no other way. There's no other name under heaven by which men must be saved. 
Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. There's no other option. This was his main mission for his first coming. Peace between God and man. He didn't come to bring a sword, at least this first time. That was not his mission. He was the prince of peace. He came into the city of peace, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. Shalem is like shalom. You're all familiar with that word of, of peace. And it's kind of an older form of Hebrew, but basically it could mean something like the city of peace or, or the foundation of peace, a city whose foundation is peace. And so Jesus, again, the Prince of Peace, comes into the city of peace. He declares a message of peace to his people. You may notice, again, the 99.9% of you that are intently following along, there's one other thing that uh, the Gospel of Luke left out, and that is the shout, Hosanna, Hosanna in the highest. He leaves this out. Hosanna roughly means save us or save now. And the people cried this out. And we could think, oh, great, they were, they were wanting salvation. No. They were wanting to be saved from the oppressive rule of the Romans. They wanted political freedom. They wanted Jesus to come in and overthrow the government. I know a few people today that might think the same way. That's the kind of salvation that they're looking for. But a different kind of salvation is what's being talked about here. It's interesting, again, that Luke leaves it out. I, uh, remember that Luke is a Gentile convert. Uh, he's a doctor, well-educated, as he writes this account. And the word Hosanna is, is a, a combination of two Hebrew words, a little more ancient in form, that again means save us or save now. And it's almost as if, you know, maybe he just wasn't familiar as well with, with the Hebrew language. Could have been as simple as that. That's kind of the way I tend to lean, actually. Um, I speak Spanish pretty well, uh, almost fluently, but it's not my native language. And so if I'm in a crowd of people speaking Spanish, I can get along and everything's great. But if someone brings up, let's say, an, an idiom or a phrase that's more culturally acceptable, I might not get it, or I might not understand, because I didn't really grow up with that in, in the home. I don't really get all those little uh, intricacies of the language. And I believe that's, that's really much of what's going on here. Here's this, this Gentile convert to the faith that maybe doesn't understand all these intricacies, and maybe doesn't even understand the meaning of that word, and therefore it's left out. Again, though, let me not discredit that all scripture is inspired by God, and it wasn't just Luke writing willy-nilly how he wanted, but God, through the Holy Spirit, uses individuals and, and people, and he uses who they are and their experiences, etc., to help lend a certain flavor into uh, the different gospel accounts that we see here. And so verse 39 says, some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, teacher, rebuke your disciples. You'll notice that while those in the crowd acknowledged Jesus as king, there was one group that didn't, and that was the Pharisees. They refused to acknowledge him. They respond to him, teacher, rebuke your disciples, not king. They didn't want to accept him. They knew who he was. He had been a proverbial thorn in their side for three years plus as Jesus was going about his public ministry. He was uh, kind of upsetting the apple cart. He was bad for business, if you will. You guys are all pretty familiar with those stories of how he challenged the, the religious authorities. And they didn't really like what he was doing. And so he says, rebuke your disciples. I imagine it was something a little more strict, though. They probably would have been pretty mad, and, and maybe it, it could have been them saying, hey, hey, tell them to shut up. Some years ago, when I was in Israel, we went to um, the Church of the Nativity in the city of Bethlehem, the site where, where uh, Jesus is believed to have been born. And as you go in, there's this little almost underground cave, 
and you can go and see supposedly the area, the rock or something. I don't know. It's, there's a lot of pomp and circumstance in Israel, if you go, for those of you that have been. Um, but nevertheless, it's, it's, it's neat to go know that generally he was born in that area. So we're waiting in the line, if you will, inside of this church, and it's shared uh, by three different faiths currently, uh, an Armenian church, a Greek Orthodox church, and a Catholic church, and they hold services all throughout the day. So there's pilgrims, as they call, tourists coming in uh, all throughout the day, and we're standing in line off to the side. And now we're in church, so we're being quite, you know, respectful, and we're, we're talking in a lower voice, you know, we don't want to disrupt. And a church service starts, and they, they come in, the Orthodox church with the procession, and they carry the cross and the incense. And there were some people in our group, I, I distanced myself, and I pretended I didn't know them. <laughs> I was supposedly the, the leader, and I didn't want any part of that. Um, but they were talking a little loud. And this Orthodox priest runs up to us, literally, in the, in the middle of the church service, and says, shut up, shut up, you shut up. And it was very, very off-putting. It was very surprising. And as I read this text, I, I have that image in my mind. I, I have that story. And I, I think, you know, probably wouldn't have been very dissimilar from what happens today. People get so caught up in their religion in the way things are supposed to be. It doesn't fit the mold. And they don't like it. They don't like it. It doesn't go against their, their traditions. Now, mind you, nothing we did went against Scripture. <laughs> nothing Jesus did went against Scripture. But it went against the tradition of man. And they were pretty upset about that. They really had a stumbling block before them. And as I was preparing, I really had to ask myself that. And I'll put that question before you. Are there any stumbling blocks in your life that might be keeping you from experiencing either A, who God is, maybe as a non-believer, you don't know who God is, or the things that are keeping you from coming to know him? Or as someone who does know him, are there things that are keeping you from growing closer in your relationship with him? Now, the crowd's acknowledgement of Jesus as the King and Messiah, and then his lack of silencing them would have been uh, tantamount to blasphemy, and the religious leaders knew this. They were seeking to kill him. John eleven fifty seven 57 says that there was an order out uh, amongst town, a warrant, if you will, that Jesus needed to be captured, that we were going to capture this guy, and that he would eventually be killed. Now, previous to this, um, every time that he had done something, it says that his hour had not yet come, or, or his time had not yet come, and they weren't able to lay a hand on him. And again, because it's God's perfect timing. God's timing had not come for it to happen, but now the time had come. Jesus had to be sacrificed on the Passover. The time was now. Again, according to the sovereign will of God, he had to be slain on the Passover because he was the Lamb of God that would take away the sin of the world. And so he makes this large public proclamation, no doubt of who he is, Zechariah 9.9, riding into the city. And he knew that they would, that they would capture him. He knew what awaited him. Now, all the gospel accounts agree that this triumphal entry happened on a Sunday, which is, of course, why we celebrate it today and every year on a Sunday. But at this day, it was a special day of the Hebrew calendar. It was the 10th of Nisan. And on this day, it was known as Lamb Selection Day. It's laid out in Exodus 12. It's when all of the Israelites were to go select a lamb that was to be sacrificed, one lamb for each household. And they would go and they would bring that lamb in. They would keep it with them for that week in their home. And then four or five days later at twilight, that lamb would be slaughtered for the Passover. It is believed that Jesus entered the Temple Mount through what is known as the Sheep Gate when he entered Jerusalem on Palm Sunday. That gate was the gate through which they drove the lambs into the temple area to be examined for sacrifice. 
It was known as the Sheep Gate because the sacrifices for worship were brought in here. Here they would undergo scrutiny before they were accepted, and the religious and political leaders did just that to Jesus. They questioned him, watched him, tried him, and accused him, never able to pin anything on him, and then they killed him anyway. Verse 40 again says, the stones will cry out. If he were to hush up his disciples, the very stones would cry out. This could have been a proverbial saying. Uh, Habakkuk 2.11 uh, talks about that. But a very simple explanation is that nothing will stop Jesus from receiving the praises that he is due. You can't shut it up. Even inanimate objects will come to life. God is the God of miracles, and he can do them. And those inanimate objects will praise him. Psalm 98, as an example, says this, Let the sea roar in all it contains, the world and those who dwell in it. Let the rivers clap their hands. Let the mountains sing together for joy. Sadly, though, from here, our story will take a somber turn, and these next few verses are usually left out of typical triumphal entry messages. But it's the text before us, and I think it's important that we examine it and that we see what's here before us, and really that we see the warning that is given. Verse 41, when he approached Jerusalem, he saw the city and wept over it, saying, if you had known in this day, even you, the things which make for peace, but now they have been hidden from your eyes. Here is the heart of God manifest in the heart and the emotions of a man. This is Jesus truly regarding one another as more important than himself, about to be arrested, tried, mocked, scourged, beaten, nailed to a cross and hung there to die. He weeps tears of sadness over those who would reject him. He weeps not over the city, but over the people. We can't miss that point. There's two accounts of Jesus crying in the Bible, John 11:35, after Lazarus dies, and uh, the Greek basically signifies that it was more of a quiet crying. Maybe a silent couple of tears fell from his eyes. This was very different. This was a loud wailing. This was loud weeping. And so the irony is, as he's being lauded and proclaimed as the king, riding into the city, shouts of, of joy uh, were being uh, afforded to him, he cries out and he weeps over the city, a most unusual sight you can imagine. Why does he cry like this? Why does he lament? Why does he, he cry out? Because they missed it. They didn't recognize the time of their visitation. They didn't understand the things which make for peace. Our final verses, 43 and 44, say, for the days will come upon you when your enemies will throw up a barricade against you and surround you and hem you in on every side. And they will level you to the ground and your children within you. And they will not leave in you one stone upon another because you did not recognize the time of your visitation. Those last two is where we take the personal turn from the city to the people. At least 11 times the word you or your is mentioned. It's not just a physical city. It's not just the stones that are going to be turned upon one another. In 70 AD, that prophecy um, would come true. Uh, the Romans would invade. The, the leader Titus would come in and invade for many months, burn and, and raise the, the city. Again, not stone would be left upon another. That prophecy was, was fulfilled. Could have been over a million people killed, they suspect. It actually happened, uh, this destruction, uh, right? The, the war started right before the time of Passover, interestingly enough. So all these pilgrims came into the city, and as soon as the war started, they shut off the, the city. And these million people were left in really a tiny town that basically wasn't meant for a million people. And then they were easy to be captured at that point. The tragedy is, though, that 
Had they abandoned their dreams of political power? Had they, had they not looked for this ruling, warring Christ that was in their image? But had they submitted to what God's plan was and they had taken the way of Christ? This need never happen. One commentator says this, there is an ignorance that is innocent, but there is also an ignorance that is culpable. These people had the revelation God made known in the scriptures of the Old Testament. They had the continuing evidence that God was active in the life and ministry of Jesus. They could see in him that God had not forgotten his people. There was every reason for them to have welcomed Jesus just as his disciples did, but they refused to accept all this evidence. They rejected God's Messiah and his offer of peace. They would now have to live with the consequences of their rejection. And it is this that brought forth Jesus' tears. And though the city and most of the people were destroyed and cut off, God didn't turn aside from the Jewish people completely. And the greater news is that God didn't turn aside from you and I. Later, Gentiles would be brought in, and that eternal life and that offer of peace was extended to all men. But much like the city of Jerusalem, there is a time. There's an expiration date, if you will. We don't know when that is. You and I each have an expiration date that we don't know when that is. And the offer of peace still stands for you and I. So I pray that we all have made that decision, that we have decided to accept Christ for who he is, the humble king, the humble servant, not just the Christ in our mind and in our image, but the real true Christ. And so I just pray that we would all have experienced that salvation. If not, I would ask, why would you wait? Today is the day of salvation, the Bible says. The time is short. We don't know the day or the hour. Today is the day of salvation. Church, let's pray. Father, we thank you uh, for a beautiful um, just story in your word of Palm Sunday. And really, the beauty comes in the humility of you who would send your son to die on a cross and that he would do so humbly, that he would do so without necessarily looking for for praise or, or applauding, Lord, but that he would come as a humble servant king, the lamb of God to be slain, to give his life as a ransom for many so that we all would have salvation and eternal life. All of us, Lord, not just the Jewish people, but all of us. And I pray today that if there's anyone that doesn't know who you are, they haven't made that decision to fully accept you, that they would do it. It's a simple prayer, but there's such rich meaning And uh, would you just cry out to him, call out, ask the Lord to save you, accept his free gift, his free offer of salvation. And for the rest of the saints in the room, Lord, would you bless us? Would you fill us this Passion Week, this Holy Week, as we look forward? It's kind of an odd thing to say we look forward to Good Friday, but ultimately we know what's going to come on Resurrection Sunday. And so, Father, be with us this week. Help draw us closer to you. Strengthen our walk with you, Lord. Help us to shout and to tell others the good news of who you are. Not that you're coming, but that you have come and that you are coming again. Father, so just build us up. Encourage us, we pray. In Jesus' name.